0: After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing what they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself.
1: I'm not sure if I'm meant to do this, but I feel it's wrong if we don't. I don't know, it feels weird. Um, Does anyone know what's happened to Forma and Steph at all? (laughs) Okay. Um, The easiest question you ever had to ask? Uh, (laughs) Isn't that what I saw somewhere? How hard was it to answer it? (laughs) Not hard. Not hard. Okay, okay, there you go. Well, there you go, engaged um, and uh, married when? I had a friend, I had a friend who got engaged, this is years ago, and I said to him, ah, oh, I didn't even know you had this girlfriend. He said, yeah, yeah, we're engaged. I said, when are you getting married? He said, when I get back from Melbourne. And I said, when are you going to Melbourne? He said, I'm not. <laughs> I just thought, there is something wrong with this relationship. <laughs> None of that's happening there. Good, okay. <laughs> How do I pray? let's, uh, the friends I used to have, there you are. Um, Father, we, uh, we thank you for the gift of relationships, relationships that are um, uh, some which move towards a kind of a deep friendship, marriage and so on, but uh, friendships that uh, are of so many different kinds, the friendships we enjoy, whether married, unmarried. We thank you for all of these. Thank you for our church family and uh, the goodness of being together. Thank you for the easing of these restrictions. And, uh, but we thank you in all of this for your word that you have spoken to us, that we might have friendship with you, relationship with you and pray please tonight that you would speak wonderfully amongst us through your word. Please do something by your Holy Spirit uh, that changes us, that touches us deeply, that helps us understand you and life with you. Please work powerfully amongst us tonight we pray in Jesus name. Amen. 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 A couple of things, uh, I've, I've been reading the Bible for 40 years, uh, well, I started when I was two or so and um, I've been reading the Bible a long time and uh, I've been reading John's Gospel on and off for many, many years and uh, so John 6, the passage we're looking at tonight, I've looked at again and again and again for many, many years but this last week two things happened which meant uh, the way I've kind of engaged with it has been slightly shifted because of uh, some two big events that have happened this week, well one big event and one small one. The first event was Ukraine. The war, and uh, who is feeling uh, sort of sort of concerned, sad, distressed that such a thing is happening? Isn't it? Uh, it's incredible, isn't it? And, and many, you, you, your generation, my generation, we have not had this kind of war. Uh, there's been there's been uh, communities where I mean, Russia's invaded Afghanistan. There's, guerrilla wars been happening all over the place, of course. But this feels like a very different kind of thing and it does feel like one world power. It feels almost like the Second World War beginning to be revisited where Germany entered Poland and Czechoslovakia and so on. Here's, here we've got Russia. And, and so it really does feel like a very significant moment in history, in human history. And the world leaders, what are they, what are they able to do? You kind of wish if you could wave your wand that you'd suddenly get a million um, soldiers from the rest of the world and stick them in the Ukraine, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to do that and stop this powerful bully that seems to be intent on taking over? But no one's able to do that. No one is doing that. Um, But then there's this question emerges from it all: Where's God? What's he doing? What's he doing in the midst of all of this? He, He seems to be absent, silent. There's the first thing that happened. It kind of you know, got me again thinking about the realities of the horrors of our world and the question, the big question, about God and his place in all of that. With evil happening, what's he doing? But the second thing that happened, which is a smaller thing, was someone drew my attention to a new song that's come out just in recent times, uh, a song about God. It's uh, the singer-songwriter, a young woman in Sydney, um, uh, calls, uh, calls it an anti-worship song. It's a song she's written and now recorded to uh, poke fun at God. She doesn't seem to have had some incredibly serious intent in her own words. She talks about it as a flippant track, making fun of God. But it's gone viral because thousands are seeing it as an expression of their own angst and pain. Now some of you may know the song. Um, It's a song that focuses on God's... Failure to engage with what she would see as the big things and yet engage with what are trivial things. Starts like this. I heard my dad pray over a football game. I guess God had time that day. Next verse talks about sexual abuse. And I don't want to go into the words of it, but because I know some of you have been through pain yourself. But the next verse reflects on the next few lines reflect on God seemed to be okay answering prayers about a football game but where was he and how come he wasn't rescuing people from the context of abuse? Where is God? Is God just the possession of the middle-class man, uh, middle-aged, who asks his prayer about sport and car spots and his business? God has time for that but he doesn't have time for the abused and the oppressed and Uh, the, the terrible things that people are doing to each other for wars what is it with God and she ends up saying why would I want to spend eternity with that God when he's such a freak when he's such a freak and even she reflects on the fact that this God seems to hate on certain people that he's created given how they're being created why would I want to spend time with God who's such a freak now It's gone viral, as I say, because I think thousands of people, uh, young men and women, are seeing it as a way of giving expression to their own cry of pain, their own sense of what is with this God of the church out there, the respectable middle-class church. What is it with this God? Now, have you felt any of this? Have you felt this sense of when you look at the world around us, and, you know, you pray for things and there's silence. You hear of horrors, and you wonder what God is doing. And have you ever wondered, uh, where is God? Is he absent? What is he doing? When you look at the world around us, it is messed up. And if you've not had that ache, I hope, well, it, it should come one day. Uh, in a sense, what this young woman's expressing is something that, Every generation for thousands of years of humanity have come to express at one point or another. It's not, like she's, it's not like she's stumbled on some new insight that the world is messed up and you wonder where God isn't at all. It's only people, it seems to me, who live in a bubble of protectiveness, who just get focused on their own concerns, who never actually look out far enough to ask these questions, who don't feel this angst. If you are, it's common. Where is God in the world? What is he doing? More, is he someone you'd want to spend eternity with, given how things look around us? Now, what I want to say tonight is that 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 cry of the heart, that ache, that expression of that song, there's another way to see things. There's another way to read the circumstances of life and understand the circumstances which profoundly change everything, profoundly change the way we see God. And I want to take you on that journey tonight. It really is quite impressive what God has given us. And, and the way to do that journey is to hear what he says about the world, what he says about himself, what he says about life, and which leaves us with a choice at the end of tonight, where we look, where you'll put your faith. Will you put your faith in what you can see in the circumstances of life or will you put your faith in what God has said about how to see the world? You see, this is John's gospel, it's all the Bible. Uh, We're into John chapter 6 and what I'm suggesting to you as we go through this somewhat familiar part of the Bible, uh, I want to help us see that it actually speaks to these very issues. So let's dive into John. Stick with me as you go through it. There's a lot of big stuff to hit tonight that uh, as we come towards the end, it will all come back together. John 6. John 6 records for us two miracles, which are not called miracles, they're called signs by John. He doesn't use the word miracle at all. He calls them signs because these aren't just workings of power, they're significant things that point to something, signs, you see. Um, And the two events are the feeding of 5,000 and the walking of Jesus on water. Now those two miracles... Uh, had been in the years past so well known that even if you never went to church you would have heard of those two events. Now that's probably less and less the case today though I dare say many of you are familiar with these two miracles. I won't therefore spend a lot of time verse by verse on the detail of it. I'll take us through it fairly quickly and then talk about the significance of them. But let me take you through fairly quickly. Uh, Chapter 6 verse 1, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. Now I've thrown a map up here, let's see if we can get this up. That'll give you some sense of it. So big picture over on the left, Galilee, the nation of Israel and so on. Blown up to see where the feeding of the 5,000 is on the right-hand side of the Sea of Galilee, up near Bethsaida. Now that's where it happens, a real place you can go and visit today. A great crowd, verse 2, of people followed him because they'd seen the signs that he'd been performing previously, the healing of the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside, he sat down with the disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him because he had in mind what he was already going to do. Philip answered it would take more than half a year's wage to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now, when you get down to verse 10, you'll see that there's 5,000 men, and if they've got uh, wives and kids with them, you're talking about 10 12,000 people. This is a massive crowd. Well, Andrew, uh, Simon Peter's brother, speaks up and says there's five loaves and two fish. And Jesus does the extraordinary thing. He gives thanks and begins speaking Handing out the food, the five bread and the two small fish, and he manages to feed 10,000 people. And verse 11, uh, verse 12 and 13, gathers it all together, what's left over after they've had their fill, and it fills 12 baskets with the pieces of barley loaves left over by those who had eaten them. What you end up with at the end of the miracle is 12 basket loads much, much, much more than you started with. This is, a, this is astonishing. But then they leave that area by boat, the disciples at least, they leave without Jesus, you can see that in verse 16 and 17. Uh, they head back across the Sea of Galilee, uh, back to Capernaum, and on their way there the storm picks up, Verse 18, verse 19, they'd rowed three or four miles and they see Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were frightened, as you would be. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now here are two events that are astonishing events. On any reckoning, they are unique. The feeding of 10,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and two fish. Have you seen anything like it? Well, I kind of have at my house. When I, um, when I turn up after church at lunchtime on a Sunday and I say to Kathy, uh, 30 people are coming for lunch, what can we do? And Kathy whips up something very quickly with a couple of loaves of bread and a bit of butter. And um, with my expert health of course. But um, I've seen that kind of thing happen. But that is not on. This is not a story about how to make a budget go a long way to feed your family. This is a miracle. This is an astonishing, extraordinary thing, and Jesus wants to make the point that it's miraculous, or it's, it's this beyond what could be possible, because he gathers up all the pieces that are left over to make sure they see there um f- there's twelve basketfuls left when we only started with five small loaves and a couple of fish. This is a miracle. It's an astonishing event, but it's not entirely unheard of in Israel's history. So this group of people that Jesus is talking to, their forefathers, the Jewish nation before them, had had an experience kind of similar many centuries earlier under a leader called Moses. That's why we had that section read from us from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter sixteen. Exodus records a time when the nation of Israel, many centuries before Jesus, when the when the people of Israel were in slavery under the Egyptians, the Pharaoh. And they cried out to God after many centuries of oppression and being crushed. And God gave them a leader, Moses, and under Moses he rescued them out. And that rescue occurred through a thing called the Passover where God's judgment upon the oppressors uh, would come and he would pass over any peoples who had put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts to signify their confidence and trust in God and their repentance before him. And that blood of the lamb on their doorposts meant that the, 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 the judgment of God passed over them. They were then brought out through the Red Sea and they went on a wandering period of time through the wilderness And it's there that God fed them miraculously. He caused what was called manna to rain down from heaven so that they were fed for 40 years in the wilderness with bread from heaven. It's an extraordinary experience in part of their history, something they'd never forgotten. It's been recorded for us in the book of Exodus. There was another similar kind of miracle. When one of their great prophets, a man called Elisha, had been used by God to feed a crowd of people uh, with a little bit of food and ended up with food left over. You read about that in 2 Kings chapter 4. Things like this had happened a couple of times before, but not like this one. The walking on water though, that's brand new. Only God walks on the water, Job chapter 9. Now I want to underline all this because we are talking about miracles. We are talking about something that is unexplainable by science. If you are if you are caught up in scientism, that philosophy of life that says the only things that are real are those that can be explained by science, then you are bought into a philosophy that actually is anti-science, because science operates on the basis of. Um, considering evidence and making a hypothesis. But if you've already decided that the answer is there cannot ever be miracles in this world, you've actually started with a conclusion and aren't willing to look at the evidence. Scientism. But make no mistake, this is unexplainable by normal scientific methods. This is a miracle. It's the complete bending of the rules of nature. You don't start with five loaths, feed 12,000 people and end up with 12 baskets of bread left after without it being, no one walks on water unless it's just for a few seconds when they then crash. What is this? It's about God. It's about God, who he is and what he's about in our world. We'll come there in a moment. Because before we get there, Because it is such an astonishing series of miracles, I want to talk with you about the the evidence for the reliability of this testimony. You see, if I build my frame of reference about life based on the evidence and not start with conclusions before I look at the evidence, which is a great problem, if I'm going to build my view of life based on what actually is, then we need to have confidence that the record of this event is what actually is. You see. Because if this actually happened, then I've got, to, I've got to bring that into my frame and understand life aware that this is something that's happened. How do we know it happened? Well, we have four different accounts who record this same incident. This is the one miracle that's reported by all four Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And certainly, John's account and the other three accounts are independent from each other. That is, John wrote his account many decades after. The other three, Uh, they're they're quite different, but all four record this event. And what's significant is if you compare them, something emerges that's important for us to notice. Let me take you through this journey. Come and have a look at chapter 6 there, verse uh, 5. Jesus looked up, saw a great crowd coming towards him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat?" Jesus asks Philip about where to buy bread. Come down to verse 8. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, answered him with the five small barley loaves and the two fish. Now why does Jesus ask Philip? Why is it that Andrew answers it? Now could it be, I mean if you've got the view that the Bible was just written by some person many centuries later as a kind of a fabricated piece of fiction to bolster the power of the church and make the priests look better or something like this, if you've got that kind of sense, then you might conclude, well, Philip's mentioned and Andrew's mentioned, because the author who makes all of this up wants to just give it a bit more liveliness, a bit more flesh to it. Because the other accounts just talk about the disciples. They don't name anyone. So why does John name these two people? Just because he wants to fill it out, you might think. But come with me and have a look at Luke's account. Come back to Luke chapter 9. An independent account written many years before, Luke chapter 9, verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done, and they, then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. The crowds learned about it, followed him, he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Later in the afternoon, send the crowd away so they can get to the surrounding villages and find food. Um, You give them something to it. So what you find out from Luke is that the miracle happens in a place called Bethsaida. Now we saw it on the map, it's on that eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He mentions it's in Bethsaida. Luke makes no point about it, it just drops the name in, we never know, makes no relevance any further at all in the story, He just tells us it's in Bethsaida. Come back to John chapter 1. And I want you to notice how hard this is to do when on your phone. Really easy when you've got a book. John chapter 1. But if you're looking on your phone, that's great. John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, John tells us uh, when Jesus called Philip, one of the disciples, to follow him, you get this bit of news. Look at verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, again, nothing's made of it. John doesn't tell us about Bethsaida and them coming from Bethsaida to make any point. He's just telling us they happen to come from Bethsaida. Come to John 6. When Jesus, verse 5, looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for the people to eat? Why does he say to Philip? Why does he ask Philip, where shall we buy bread? Because he's a local. He lived in Bethsaida. Why is it, verse 8, that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, speaks up? Because Andrew is from Bethsaida. It's just two little pieces of unconscious engagement with eyewitness recording that are just impossible to manufacture. If you had two people decades apart write an account some hundred years later of something they're making up, you don't, you don't manage to put these details in it. You, you, it's impossible to have worked out how to dovetail these things when they don't make anything of these issues. What you have here is very clearly first-hand eyewitness account reporting of what happened. John was there and he remembers Jesus talks to Philip and Andrew answers and it makes perfect sense that those that thing happened the way because they're from Bethsaida which is where the whole thing happened you see even chapter 6 verse 1 that is the sea of Tiberius the sea of Galilee that is the sea of Tiberius when John's writing the sea of Galilee is shifting in its name over the centuries over the decades the name of the sea begins to morph into another and John has to explain who he means which sea he means to the audience he's now writing to this, is, this has the marks of someone who was just there, who is now reporting what he saw. Now that is terrifying, isn't it? Because it means this is true. And if this is true, what am I going to do with it? Because Jesus isn't just any other man. What does this say about Jesus? Let me tell you, what does this say about Jesus? This just isn't any act of power that some person manages to conjure up. It's a highly intentional act of power by Jesus, the man of power. He asks Philip, where shall we buy food in verse 5? But verse 6, John tells us he was only asking this to test him, for Jesus had already decided what he was going to do. Jesus had already determined to feed this crowd of people. Why? to say something about his identity and who he was, to reveal something about himself as a sign. And in hindsight, John writes knowing this about Jesus and so helps us as readers know what's going on because verse 4, he tells us that the Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, why tell us that? Because that helps us as readers... Join the dots. What John does is go, (laughs) after these years, it's now obvious what was going on in this event. In fact, I'll show you in a moment, Jesus says it's obvious. The Passover, do you remember? That was the occasion where God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, brought them through the wilderness where he fed them manna from heaven, a great miraculous feeding. We're told now that they're in the wilderness again. The uh, hill country, the the place where they are um, to the far shore uh, and verse 3 went up on a mountainside. It's actually went went up into the hilly country there. They're in the wilderness. It's the same kind of place back in the nation of Israel's history. They're they're sitting in groups and Jesus gives them food from heaven. And what's left over is not just a little bit like Elisha's miracle from Kings chapter 4 but baskets and baskets of food left over. This is a miracle beyond what they've ever understood. This is very much like what they'd seen in their history. And so their reaction is, verse 14, when the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now why say that? Because all the way back, when all of that happened under Moses, At the end of Moses' life, he said to them, Deuteronomy chapter 18, one day there's going to be another prophet like me come. Listen to him. I'm just the forerunner of another great prophet who will come. And these people, these first century Jews, are joining the dots. The prophet has come that we've been waiting for. They seek now to make him king. Uh, verse, 20, verse 15, but Jesus won't let them because it's not his time and it's not his way, and so he retreats. You see, they saw the significance of what was going on in the feeding of the 5,000, but they didn't see the full of significance. They saw that it was a sign that Jesus was the new Messiah. True, but not true enough. Jesus, in fact, tells them there's far more going on. Come with me to chapter 6 verse 30, come a little later now. Jesus explains all of this. With all of this in place, you might be, oh, well, I don't know, you might be sitting there going, "Wow, it looks a bit far-fetched to me. Have a look at verse 30. They asked him, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, the Passover wilderness, Moses. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see how they're talking about Moses in the Passover. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who has who given you bread from heaven, but it was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. What Jesus is, is toying with here is the idea that Moses was just a, a, a medium through whom God gave them the bread. It wasn't Moses who gave them the bread, it was God who gave them the bread. God's the one who gives the true bread from heaven. Now look what he says. Verse 32. Verse, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, it's my Father who gives you the true bread. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What Jesus is saying is Moses was, he, he was just one through whom God, it was God doing it. God gave him the bread through Moses. And Jesus now says, your experience you've just had or have heard about. I'm the very bread that God gives you. I'm actually John chapter 5. Remember we looked at that wonderfully last week. John chapter 5. I am the life that gives you life. Because God the Father has life in himself and He has granted that me, the son, would have life in myself. I'm the one who gives you life. As the Father has given bread of life, I give you bread of life. Because I and the Father are one. I do all that the Father has done. He gave it to Moses. He gives it now. He gives it through me. I'm even the bread. I'm far more than Moses ever was. Understand this. I'm not just another prophet through whom God works. I am the bread. Lift your eyes. Lift your sight to see the astonishing things that happen, and more, he walks on water, which is a draw-dropping miracle. But so to his words, come to John 6, verse 20, he says to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Now that looks a very harmless set of words, until you learn a bit of Hebrew and a bit of Greek. So let me teach you some Hebrew and Greek. I've got a slide up here. There we go, it's big enough that I can read it. Um, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the first two thirds of the Bible, three quarters or whatever, is written in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, but the language, the original language, is Hebrew. In Exodus chapter three, Moses—do you remember Moses? Passover, wilderness wanderings—that man, Moses—asks God at the burning bush, chapter three, um, "Give me your name, so I can tell Israel who sends me." And God says, "My name is," and he, he, my name is Yahweh, and He just drops these four consonants, the vowels aren't actually in it, it's just Y-H-W-H without the A and the E. It's called the tetragrammaton, the four um, letters of the name of God. Now we don't quite know how to translate that. It's a word that sort of sits there and it's kind of the word for existence, the word for being. And so I am who I am. That's not a bad translation because a few words later he actually uses the language of I am. I am has sent you. So God's name, God's name itself is, is I ex- I'm existence, I'm being, I'm life, I, I'm dependent on no one and I give life to I am. I'm the great I am. Now this is confirmed. Come and look with me at Isaiah 43. Didn't do this in the morning, so you've got a a, a rich treasure tonight. Isaiah 43. They couldn't cope in the morning, but you can. Isaiah 43. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Now in the Hebrew, that's just I, he. There's no M. It's just I, that you might know that I am he. When that's translated into Greek, it's translated as ego, amy. Ego is the Greek word for I. Amy is the verb to be. It's the verb I am, I was, I will be, uh, you are. It's that verb. Um, and it's, so in Greek it's ego, I, amy, I am. Now, in Greek, you could, you could just put the word amy and it would make sense. I am. I'm a door. I am uh, angry. I am whatever you are, you see. Um, uh, Jesus says he's the door. Don't laugh at him. It, um, <laughs> but uh, you add the word ego before it and it's, it emphasizes I, I am. Well, that's what's translated here in verse 10. Understand, when it's translated into Greek, it goes, understand that I, I am. And you get it again in verse uh, 11. Uh, I, even I, am the Lord. Apart part there is no saviour. You get it in verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. I, I am. He's repeated through Isaiah 43. And in the Jewish mind, this language of I am becomes associated with the name of God, Yahweh, with God. He just is. He is the great I am. So you come to the New Testament in John chapter 6, and Jesus is walking on water. And when he comes to them, verse 20, he says, Don't be afraid. Ego amy. I, I am. Now. You could just translate that as, it is I. We'll see a blind guy use that same two words later. I'm just I, it's me. But come with me to John 8. Here's a debate we'll look at in the future weeks, but it's the discussion around Abraham. Abraham was a long time before Moses, so many centuries before Jesus, you see. And there's a discussion about verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. They say to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Ego amy. What's Jesus saying? I and the father are one. I am, the great I am. It is a powerful and astonishing thing for a man to say, to capture the language of the very name of God. In chapter 6, when he walks on water, is he saying there, ego, Amy, I am? Maybe. He certainly is in chapter 8. Here it looks like he's going, you'll realise what's going on in a few months' time. But think of it as just, it is I at this stage. Jesus is saying extraordinary things. He is saying he's adopting this language for himself. It's not clear at this point, but it will be by chapter 8. And he is certainly, it seems, hinting at it. You see, it was God who rescued Israel from the first oppression under Egypt, who rescued them out through the Passover. Brought them out from under slavery. He revealed himself as the great I am and fed them in the wilderness through his prophet Moses. And here comes Jesus, feeding them in the wilderness with far more than they ever experienced. And he says he is more than the prophet. He is the bread itself. He is one with the Father. So the Father does it because he is life. I do it because I've got life. I bring life. I'm life itself. I am. I have life in myself. And more, he walks on water, as only God can do, and says, don't be afraid, ego amy, I, I am. You see, this was John's journey. It was a journey that was mind-blowing, mind-shaking truths that he went through. It's why the reliability of the Bible matters so much. Because if, what, if this happened as John said it happened, this is the greatest truth humanity ever could understand. What we are doing here tonight is coming in touch with the divine, sovereign God of the universe who enters into his world as a human. This is not a myth or a fairy tale. This is eyewitness reporting. There is nothing more important you can wrestle with than this very thing. God is real and he has come amongst us. And more than that, he shows himself to be life, life itself, the bread of life. He shows himself to be good. He shows himself to be glorious and he shows himself to be one who wants to give, to give you life. And more, one last thing. These events are saying something more than even this. They're saying that Jesus is the new Moses but greater than Moses. He's the bread itself, he's life because he's one with the Father. He is the great I am. But he is saying even more than that. He is saying that God has come again to work a new Passover. A new rescue out from under slavery. You see, this is how the Bible works. The Old Testament part of the Bible gives you scale models of which the new is the reality. It gives you a shadow of which the New Testament is the reality that casts that shadow. And the scale model in the Old Testament is the Passover out from under Egypt, the feeding in the wilderness, Elisha and his feeding. They're the scale models, the shadow, the reality that they're always anticipating, God's final coming in the person of his son, Jesus, to rescue us ultimately by a great Passover, a great rescue out from not just Egypt, not just from Rome, but out from under sin and Satan and death. And not just the Jews, but every nation on earth, every peoples. And Jesus arrives on the planet and John says of him, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb, like the Passover Lamb. Here is the one, he says, at the very time when he's been crucified on the cross, um, John tells us that that was the time that the Passover Lambs were being crucified, the real Passover Lamb, while the Scale model ones were being crucified, were being killed. The blood shed by Jesus, the great lamb, paid to rescue us finally. He'll be crucified to bring forgiveness and reconciliation. You see, when we look around the world, let's get back to it. When we look around the world. We see oppression, we see evil, we see powerful rulers doing dreadful things, we see sexism, racism, we see um, abuse and so on. We see, but get this, they are all just symptoms of a deeper root problem. And the root problem is human rebellion against the divine infinite majesty of a glorious God. And that break with God has unleashed in our world all the things we see. And God in his goodness comes to deal with the root problem, to finally eradicate all the symptoms in a new creation. We've talked about this again and again. This is the great glorious picture that God has for us. He comes to do the final great Passover. You know, I started with that song tonight. I think it's the song that is the ache of every honest human's heart. In a sense, I want to applaud what she's written because I want to say there's honesty. Now, I think she's got so many things wrong. But she's got it wrong because she's looking at the experiences of life and she doesn't have access to the word that helps you make sense of what's going on. But it is an honest cry of the human heart. What is with it, this world we live in? If there is a God, where is he? Isn't he doing something? Surely he must. If he's not doing anything, how can he be worthy of being followed? But the Bible tells us he is good. He is the one who comes into his world as one of us, not one of the powerful. He comes not one of the respectable. He comes as a servant, as a slave. And he comes to die for us, to rescue us from this mess. He comes to deal with that deepest problem, our rebellion. Let me just explain a few things here, you see. When we think about the world and we think about the Russian uh, powerful men coming to oppress others, we imagine the world split up between evil people and us. There's Putin, the evil ruler, despot. And then there's us, who are just trying to be good. And there's a divide between evil and good. Well, others have drawn this observation... That line that divides evil and good is not between people and other people. It's not between political power and other political group. It's a divide that runs right through every single human heart. Every single human heart sitting here tonight has good and evil. We have all of that intermingled in ourselves. And here's the deal. If God comes into the world to end evil, if he comes to eradicate evil, not one of you will survive. Not one of us would survive. But what God chooses to do is come in history, in the person of his son, to deal with that heart, to bring cleansing and purification and forgiveness so that when he does finally eradicate all evil, I'll be safe. Anyone who's forgiven by the merits of Jesus will be safe on that day and will come through it into the new age, the new kingdom. Now all of this helps us understand the world we're in. Why isn't God doing something? If you look at the circumstances of life, you're left wondering. But if you look at the Bible, it gives you the answer. And the answer is this. God is not absent from the world. He's patient with it. God's not absent. He's patient. God is not absent in that he's just uncaring and uninterested. He is deeply, deeply grieved by the fallenness of this world and the evil that you experience and I experience that I give. And he came 2,000 years to deal with it. And he's now patiently bearing with all of that. Why? Because he wants more people to be saved. He wants more people to come and find forgiveness through the great Passover that Jesus has done for us. He wants you to come and find your heart transformed and forgiven and established in relationship with God again. That you might be with him into eternity when he fixes everything up. And so God has to wait. He has to bear with it and let it happen in a sense until the times have reached their fulfillment because he wants you to be saved. You see, this is not the sign, the absence, the seeming absence of God is not sign that he's not good. It's the very evidence that he's a wonderful, gracious and glorious God who is so gracious that he's willing to deal, bear with this to give you one more day to repent and come back. God is not absent. He is gracious. And my point here to you is tonight if you read off life through the circumstances, you'll come to one answer, which is God must be a freak. But if you read life through the scriptures, the events of Jesus that are reliably attested to, that are extraordinarily true, if you read life through the events of Jesus, you will see that He's not absent, He's patient. And you will never land in the place that that young woman landed in. You'll actually find yourself glorying in God and full of gratitude and wonder for his greatness and goodness. And you'll find yourself wanting to be with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the incredible revelation of who you are and what you're about in our world. And we pray, please, that you would help us trust your word and not the circumstances of life. Please rescue us from superficiality of thinking about the world simply on the basis of the circumstances we see. Please rescue us from that. Please help us see life through the lens of the scriptures, that we might understand your goodness in being patient. We might never, please, land in a place that thinks of you as the freak. We thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus and pray, please, that you would change us. I pray for those amongst us tonight who have not got faith in you, who are still wondering and still wandering, that please, you might bring them back. Bring them to see the beauty and glory and greatness of your love for them in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: to God with gratitude in our hearts. So for the the third one, we sing to God with gratitude in our hearts because he is the great I am. So while our hearts are heavy, either because of our personal circumstances or what's going on in the rest of the world, how incredible that God is still our refuge that we can continually return to. So as we sing tonight, sing to yourselves, to each other. I'm